The year was 1984, I was 11 years old, and I got myself a calculator watch. Super cool, super cool. And I devised a plan to play a joke on this kid in my class with my calculator watch. And I went over to him and I said, hey, uh, I set my calculator watch to go off. And when it goes off, a bunch of us are gonna throw all of our books on the floor at the same time, just as a joke. And uh, so he looked over at my desk and I piled all my books on my desk. And so I was like, okay. So I sat down and we were all just working and he put all his books on his desk. And beep, beep. And all of a sudden he goes, yeah, woo! And he throws all his books on the floor. And of course, I didn't tell anybody else. And I just stood there and looked at him like, what is wrong with him? And all of a sudden he stopped and he looked. And the whole class was looking at him and he got in trouble. And then, of course, he said it was my fault, so then I got pulled out of the classroom. And I was really sorry about it because I got in trouble. So really what I was sorry about was the impact my actions were having on me. I mean, I, was, I, was, I regretted it, but I wasn't, I, didn't, I wasn't repentant. The thing about repentance is that repentance isn't focused on the impact that it's having on you. Um, it's, it's really focused on the impact that you're having on, on others. And so uh, it's, it, it's not, re- repentance is not just this kind of haphazard, my bad, and you move on. See, because the thing is, if I was repentant, I would have treated him differently after that. But I'm sad to say that the way that I related to him that entire school year, there, there was no difference. So I was sorry about what I did, and I was sorry about the impact it had on my life, but it certainly wasn't repentant. It didn't change the way that I related to, to that little guy. And so that's a very sad ending to the tale. But I do that intentionally because this morning we are going to look at this thing called repentance. We've been going through Luke 15. Today's text, which I'm about to read, is in Luke 15. I'm going to read verses 11 to 24 in a minute. But it's this uh, parable Jesus gave with three pictures. A picture of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and lost sons. And there's a similarity between these three. And the common thread, of course, is that, as you read it, God has incredible joy over the lost being found. But the lost sheep, the lost corn, the lost sons, they also have something in common. What they have in common is that they're oblivious to the fact that they're lost. They don't recognize that they they need to be saved. The sheep is eating grass, right? It's lost, but it's oblivious. The coin is inanimate, therefore it's utterly helpless. The younger son goes off and he's having a good time being reckless, and the older son is at home being self-righteous. But they're all lost in their own way. And so this, this picture we're going to look at this morning is specifically the image of this younger son who, uh, uh, who at this point in the story, Jesus deepens and expands how God accomplishes his restoration plan using the younger son, and it's this thing called repentance. So we're going to look at this from Luke chapter 15, 11 to 24. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who set him in the field to feed the pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs were eating, yet no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his hand. Put shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate for this my son was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is God's word. Now in verse 13, it describes this, this young son who ran off and spent his father's inheritance as reckless. Or maybe your translation says prodigal. And the Greek word here is asatos, which means extravagant, sparing no expense. And what's happening is the young son is extravagant in an immoral way, but Jesus is depicting this father as being extravagant in a gracious way. And what we discover about this father is this, his heart and his uh, joy towards his lost son is expressed in a beautiful uh, and, a, and a powerful way. And it's in this love of the father that Jesus uses in this, uh, Jesus takes his teaching to expand and uh, deepen our understanding of this gift of repentance. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. The fuel for our repentance is God's grace. The focus for our repentance is God's goodness. And the freedom of repentance is in the continual work of God's renewal. So the fuel, the focus, and the freedom of repentance. These are the three things we're going to look at. Here's the first thing. The fuel for repentance is God's grace. So the father never stopped loving the son. And the father has been actively anticipating the return of his son. And the father, instead of disowning the son, tears his own life apart, and he sells his ancestral land, and he makes the return possible. But the instigating factor that started this healing process is in verse 17. And in verse 17 it says... He came to himself, this thing of repentance. Now, being North American, we would prefer that deep life change would come through a series of action steps that I would give you that you would be able to just do uh, in your own time and in your own way. Here's the problem with this idea of how do I get deep life change? Just tell me and I'll do it. Here's the problem. The problem is, and this is what this text teaches us, most often what detonates the greatest change in our life is coming to ourselves. And which means we can't wake ourselves up. We need something to wake ourselves up. We're not woke. We need grace to make us woke. That's the whole point of verse 17. When he comes to himself, he doesn't have an epiphany when he's still got money in the bank. He's not sitting there reflecting on his life and pontificating about the, you know, the thing and just makes this intellectual decision to return to his father. He needs something to wake him up. And that's true of all of us. How many of you kids are, who are in here have ever been driving with your parents 
And all of a sudden, you're in the car and you're in the back seat, and you hear a sound like this. And the car goes, uh, you know, and maybe you're doing something and all your stuff is generally. It's because maybe your parents were talking or something or listening to music and, you know, dancing in the front seat or something. And the car goes over onto something called a rumble strip. The rumble strips are on the sides of the road and they're there to wake you up. God's grace is the rumble strip that wakes us up. Sometimes pain and horror, you know, and, and, and things that occur in our lives, circumstances as a result of our sin, as a, result, as, a, as a result of us saying, you know, forget God, I'll be my own God. We end up having rumble strip moments in life that wake us up. So here's the challenge. It's that the flaws, the weaknesses, the shortcomings, the character deficiencies uh, that are creating the biggest problems in our lives are harmful sins precisely because we don't see them. We're often downplaying our sin or the impact that it's having on us and others because we're either in denial that it's that bad or we're blind to it altogether. It's like a massive blind spot. I remember when I was getting my license, my, my driving instructor, her name was Sandy, and she said to me, I'm going to teach you about blind spots. Sandy was a chain smoker, and she talked exactly like that, and she said, and in fact, she was just like, do you mind if I smoke? And I'd be like, hey, if I'm going to get my license, you can smoke like a chimney. I don't care. And uh, so Sandy uh, says to me, every time I move out of your view, you look in this rear view mirror, and every time I move out of your view, raise your hand. So she took a handful of pens out of the glove box, and she went out. And every time I couldn't see her anymore through my rearview mirror, I raised my hand. And she put a pen down, put a pen down. And then she invited me out of the car, and she said, do you see the size of the area that you can't see? That's your blind spot. You could put a Hummer in there. And all of us need something to awaken us, just like the sun, to our need for God's great grace. Coming to our senses is not something we can do unless something is first being done to us. And so the fuel for our repentance is actually God's grace. And God is not insecure. He gives us the dignity to choose even if we choose to reject him. Just like this father gave his son the dignity to choose to reject him and the son rejected him. God is not insecure. This parable teaches us something about our heavenly father. He made the repentance possible by not disowning the son. He made the repentance possible by giving the son over to his own immature, self-centered, sinful desires. So that when the inevitable crash came, he'd come to his senses. This is the fuel of repentance, which is God's grace moving towards us, church, uh, graciously. And notice that when the son thinks about returning to his father, it's when he comes to the end of himself and not before. Because turning to the Father is not on his radar until he exhausted his resources. Just, and the truth is that as long as we are convinced that we can be our own God and we can find fulfillment apart from God, we're not going to turn to the Father either. Right? If you have a healthy body, food on the table, money in the bank, relationships are intact, who needs God? You're just going to be your own God. But it's when our resources are exhausted. It's when we find ourselves, not even necessarily down and out, but you can be up and out. You know, and we find ourselves in a paralyzing place of stress or a nagging sense of emptiness or chronic dissatisfaction, even though, you know, there's money in the bank and we have all the toys. It's never enough. Or relationships are crumbling around us. Or the ultimate situation that makes us all woke, attending a funeral, where we are forced to sit there long enough to contemplate 
how short and fragile life is. These are the things that cause us to either start thinking about the Father or thinking about returning to the Father. In other words, if it weren't for the extravagant grace of the Father that made our return possible, left the doors wide open for that young rebellious son to return, he would have had nowhere to go when he came to the end of himself. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus' perfect life that you and I could never live and his atoning death that paid the price such that you and I do not have to have an an eternal final death and his divine resurrection makes a way back for us to the Father. In the same way that that Father left the door wide open for the Son, the stone being rolled away from the empty tomb is the door left wide open for us. The curtain at the crucifixion of Christ, when the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom, which, which uh, separated the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was, where only the high priest could go once a year. That was torn from top to bottom, which is the direction of God's grace for you, church. Top to bottom, coming toward you, minus your merit. That's the wide open door that enables us to go and to receive the great grace and the great love of God. It is uh, the fuel. God's grace is the fuel for our repentance. And gathering week in and week out for church is about being refueled. It's about having our hearts filled. It's about renewal, rest for our souls. The gospel recalibrates our hearts so that we are no longer drawn away, trusting in small things in an ultimate way, turning to good things and turning them into insufficient little gods that are incapable of satisfying us. Now, you kids, I keep using this word recalibrated all the time. It, it, it means retuned. You know the, the Sundays that Owen is up here playing the guitar? Every Sunday, he retunes that guitar. Every Sunday. He's never once gone into the practice room with the worship team and said, oh, the guitar's fine. I don't need to retune it. Let's just play. Because he'll be off-key. The guitar constantly goes out of tune by nature of just living on planet Earth. The humidity in the air, the environment. The guitar is constantly going out of tune. All of our hearts have a propensity to constantly go out of tune. This kind of like, forget about God, be God, do our thing, whatever. Leave him in the background. Maybe he's there if, you know, something catches on fire. And so the gospel is like a constant retuning of our heart. We gather on Sundays to have our hearts retuned so that we can truly enjoy life. Because I'll tell you, you're not free to enjoy life if you keep taking small things and making them the ultimate thing. There's nothing wrong with your education. There's nothing wrong with your career. There's nothing wrong with money in the bank, your house, your car, you know, your boat, your toys. There's nothing wrong with that. But make it ultimate and it'll be pig slob. There's nothing wrong with your marriage. There's nothing wrong with your children. There's nothing wrong with relationships. There's nothing wrong with your plus one. There's nothing wrong with going out and enjoying the city and, and, and enjoying uh, beautiful friendships. But make those things your ultimate thing and it'll soon be pig slob. Because all of those things are in a constant uh, place of being threatened just because we live on planet Earth. That something is always threatening to, to, to either take those things from us or those things let us down or people let us down. There's nothing wrong with focusing on your health, focusing on your body, focusing on uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, be healthy. But center your whole life around your body. It's exhausting. It's pig slop. You... If you live long enough, it's letting you down. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're an idolatry to your, to, to your own health and your wealth and your life, I mean, the process of... Li- if you live long enough, that idol is going to fail you. That's just logic. 
And so the gospel frees us from that. It recalibrates our heart from that. So we can actually enjoy all those things without them ever becoming ultimate. James K. Smith is the professor of philosophy at Calvin College. And he wrote a book that I read earlier this year called You Are What You Love. And this is what he says. He says, the worship, the worship switch has been stuck in the on position since Genesis. Everybody worships. It's not an option. Everyone worships. It's just a, a, the question is, what is it that we are worshiping? And God is not insecure. God does not need our worship so he can be fully God. But we, as the creatures, need to worship him so that we can enjoy life as it was meant to be enjoyed. Otherwise, as creatures who don't worship the creator, we will worship the created. We will find something and worship it. And it cannot satisfy our soul in the end at all as pig slop. And so this thing called repentance is... is, uh, a liberating gift of God that draws us back to him, our source of life and our source of enjoyment. In verse 20, notice where the father is when the reckless rebel returns. Because where, where the father is, is God's posture towards you. This is God's posture. It's in grace. It, this is what fuels our repentance and makes it possible. He's not at the house with his arms crossed, with his eyebrow raised, sitting on the porch with a shotgun, saying, this better be good. You know, before a word of repentance is even uttered, before the repentance is even uttered, which is why I keep telling you God's grace is the fuel for our repentance. Before a word is even uttered, he is running towards the sun. And I need you to know that in the ancient Near East, a patriarch who hikes up his skirt and exposes his bare legs and runs is utterly humiliating. So the picture we have of the Christian God is a God whose love for you is so great, he is willing to utterly humiliate himself. The cross of Jesus Christ is utter humiliation. I mean, Jesus' birth and clothing himself in the dirt of his creation was humiliating. The cross being crucified like a, a common criminal, humiliating. Crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Humiliating. Everything about it is utterly humiliating. His, the 12 guys that hung out with him run away because they don't want to be next on the cross. Humiliating. The cross of Jesus Christ looks like ultimate failure. It is the ultimate Messiah fail. It is ultimately humiliating. That is the length God is willing to go to restore us who don't deserve it. In the same way that that rebellious son, it's a picture of the gospel. And so for those of you who are here who've, who've never yet placed your faith in God, or for those of you who are here who find yourself continually dethroning God by making some small finger God, God's grace is running toward you. Not not only before you even speak your word of repentance is God's grace coming toward you, but his love and his grace is actually fueling it and he's enabling it. The confession in verse 21, when the young son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. That confession could flow freely because before he even said it, he was being kissed and hugged. Do you see the posture? I'll borrow from Timothy Keller's book, Prodigal God. This is what he says. God's pouncing, kissing love enables our repentance. This is the picture of our God. 
So the first thing is that the fuel for our repentance is God's grace. The second thing we're going to look at is that the focus for our repentance is God's goodness. In verse 18, the young son says, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And Jesus chooses these words because this is the true posture of a truly repentant heart. In fact, he's using that language because the Pharisees, who are the audience, who are listening to this teaching, they would, they would immediately understand this language of sin against God and in your sight. Because in, in Psalm 51, that's the language David used. David was the king of Israel. David was one of the greatest, or the greatest leader in Israel before he, he fell in sin. And when David wrote Psalm 51, it was because his heart was broken because he, repent, because he was repenting. He was, he was sorrowful because he stole a man's wife and then he killed the man. He takes Uriah's wife and he sends Uriah into battle and has Uriah killed. So that Uriah doesn't know that the kid that, that his wife is pregnant with isn't his, but it's David's. It's a total mess. And how does David word his repentance? He says, I've sinned against God. He says, you alone have I sinned. How is that possible? What about Uriah? You see, it's because at the heart of repentance, you realize you sinned against God's goodness. See, the focus of our repentance is not just like me with a calculator watch, sorry that I got caught, sorry that I'm in the principal's office, sorry that what I did is now having this negative impact on my life. It's a sorrow against, oh, God is so good, and he's so loving, and I sinned against that, and because I sinned against that, I've also sinned against my neighbor, and I've done some unloving thing toward my wife, my children, my spouse, the, 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 my friends, the co-worker, the employer, the employee. I did this unloving thing in a horizontal way because I sinned in this vertical way against God. And so this is why Jesus gives, uh, in, the, in his story, gives the young man this phrasing, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. That's the picture of true repentance. Because true confession is upward, and then it's outward. True confession does not turn inward to justify its actions. See, what, what awakened the prodigal and what caused him to come to his senses is the same thing that brings us to our senses, pain, right? It's like the rumble strips on the highway that I was talking about, right? And what we want to do when we feel that pain is we want to get rid of the pain. Well, true repentance goes upward and outward. It hates what our sin does to the heart of God, and it hates what our sin does to others. But self-pity, which is not repentance, goes inward. It only hates the impact our sin is having on us. So if my main concern is how that thing is affecting me, I'm not repentant. I'm just hashtag sorry, not sorry. Two weeks ago, Susan and I are having a coffee because you're thinking, oh, so the last time Paul repented was 1984. Not really. So two weeks ago, Susan and I are having a coffee, and we're talking about well, all kinds of things. But one of the things we started talking about was how my deficiencies, my character flaws, my sin impacts her and our kids and how it comes out in various ways. My anger, my frustration, uh, you know, uh, you know, in, in, all, in, in my, kind of my way, of, my way of, of being around the house when I, when I uh, you know, wallow in, wallow in myself and have a pity party. We're talking about all this. And as we're talking about it, I start to, what I think is, repent. So I start out and I'm like, oh man, babe, I can't, oh my gosh, oh Susan. And I start out repenting, or I think I'm repenting. But then I start talking about, you know, all of these hurtful things in my life and in my world and my past, whatever, things I think are contributing to why I did this thing. And Susan stops me and she's very loving and she's very gracious, she's very patient about the way she did it. And she was just like, she's like, babe, I gotta just tell you something. 
I know that right now you want me to feel like empathy for you, but I don't feel empathy for you because I know you think what you're doing right now is repenting, but this is actually blame shifting. And all of a sudden, I came to my senses in the coffee shop two weeks ago and I realized this is exactly what I'm doing. I've shifted it. I'm using, the, I'm using the vernacular of, oh, I'm so sorry and I'm so repentant, but really everything coming out of my mouth is not so much I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. It's really more like, oh man, I hate the impact this is having on my life. How can I change this? It's totally inward. Right? Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 10, Paul teaches on all this. And he says, godly sorrow leads to repentance and worldly, worldly sorrow leads to death. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, godly sorrow leads all the way to repentance, which leads all the way to change. But worldly sorrow just leads to regret. It stops at regret. It never gets to repentance and change. It's, just, it's uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling bad about the impact it's having on me. And so freedom is a result of us getting all the way to repentance, of us getting all the way to, I've sinned against you, God, and before you. Repentance is not just intellectually conceding that we've broken God's rules. It's honestly grieving that we've broken God's heart. And that's the language Jesus chooses to put in the mouth of this young kid. He says, I sinned against God, I sinned against you. I broke God's heart, I broke your heart. This is the picture of, the, of uh, Romans 2.4 teaches this as well. It says that the goodness of God leads to repentance. It's not the angry God that leads to repentance. It's not the, it's not the cosmic killjoy in the sky with the two-by-four that leads to repentance. It's not the arms crossed, you better get it right, that leads to repentance. It's this goodness of this Father who's constantly coming towards us in His grace that fuels our ability, and it's our focus on His goodness that leads us to this place of repentance. J.I. Packer wrote a book called... Uh, Knowing God, and in it, I'm going to read an excerpt. He says that God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards sinners. As such, the love of God is the nature of his grace and mercy. It's outgoing from God in kindness, which is altogether contrary to what we actually deserve. So Jesus doesn't, when Jesus tells the story, he doesn't have this younger brother make any excuses. He doesn't say, well, Dad, I know I've sinned against you, but you don't know how hard it is to live with this older brother. Whew, have you seen this kid? What a, what a self-righteous piece of work. Not to mention that all young people rebel, and not to mention that there's kids down the street who did way worse things than I did. And I mean, come on, Dad, after all, everybody sins. That doesn't, that's not even repentance. That kind of conversation is, there is no repentance. That's just blame shifting. And so Jesus gives the, teaches us this. He says, hey, I want to teach you the way to freedom, which is the final point. So the fuel, of our, the fuel for repentance is God's grace. The focus of our repentance is actually God's goodness, that that's what we sinned against. And it's because we sinned against that that we sinned against our neighbor. But the final thing is that the freedom of repentance is in the continual work of God's renewal in us. This is the good news for us, church, right? In verse 19, the son's plan was to go to his father and say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your hired men. Now, a hired man didn't live on the property, lived in town, and he worked it for a, for a day wage. And so basically what the son is saying is, I don't want mercy, I don't want grace, I will pay it all back. God, I will make this right. Lord, if you get me out of this situation, I promise I'm gonna. This was his plan, but he never actually gets to that part in his speech. Which is, in, which is, of course, Jesus knows this. It's intentional. The first part of, her, of his repentance was bang on. And the second half of his repentant plan was dead wrong. So the father cuts him off. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In verse 22, 
The father doesn't even let him talk about earning his way back. The father, the father cuts him off and he says, Oh, you're not worthy to be called my son? Yes, you are. Get a robe, cover his nakedness. Get a ring, put it on his finger. The ring, by the way, in the ancient world often had a family insignia on there. So he's re- by giving the son the ring, he's reinstating him as a son. The son says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He says, yes, you are my son. On what basis? My grace. Grace alone. You will not have any conversation about him earning his way back. And we can relate to the way that the son was thinking because we've done it. Cultural conversations about God are that he's this cosmic killjoy with his arms crossed, constantly dissatisfied with what we're up to. He's like a grumpy gym teacher who's blowing his whistle, you know, barking at us to run faster. So a lot of us have gone to God in prayer after we've sinned, and we kind of pitch the hired hand thing with God. We're like, okay, God, now I'm serious. You know, if you'll forgive me and have me back, I'll blow the dust off my Bible. I'll start praying. I'll get one of those little reading plans, and I'll check a box every single day. You know, I'm going to pay you back. No, you won't. And no, you can't. And the good news is that the Father is not fixated on getting things from you. He wants you. And so we get this from the text. The Reformational theologians used to say, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. And so spiritual disciplines like prayer and scripture meditation and gathering together for worship, these are not barter for leveraging blessings from God. They're bread for enjoying God. Now, if you're repenting to somebody that you've wronged, then endeavoring to pay back what you stole is the right thing to do. Trying to make things right in every way possible is a loving thing to do. It's an appropriate thing to do if it's a horizontal repentance for us to try and make that right. But when it is a vertical repenting to God, we don't make self-atonement. It's dead wrong. And that's that's what Jesus is teaching us here. Jesus rejected the hired hand type of repentance. You can't earn your way back, which is why God's grace is utterly amazing because there is no other relationship in your life that works that way. If you break trust with somebody, you got to earn the trust back. That's how relationships work. You can't relate to other people and expect them to extend to you the grace of Jesus where they don't expect anything to be earned back. That's not humanly possible. That's not human grace doesn't work like that. We want to, as those who know we've been forgiven, extend forgiveness and not make people earn our forgiveness. So don't hear me saying that. But what I'm saying is no other relationship that you have in your life can you walk away in dismal failure, dismal rejection, total abandonment, and be welcomed back in with open arms? You don't have a relationship like that. Apart from the Heavenly Father. Apart from God. Who, at our worst, constantly gives us His best in grace. This is what we learn here from this text in how the Father relates to the Son. And so... With every other relationship we break, we have to do the humbling, hard work of rebuilding toward restoration. But in the gospel, Jesus did the perfect work at the cross. He did the humbling work to to, uh, bring our restoration. The empty tomb is the sign that his work on your behalf was accepted. That there's no penance before God. The resurrection was the amen of the Father to the it is finished of the Son. And that is what's true for you and I, church. 
And a lot of us often think of repentance as this draining experience of disempowerment, right? We often think it's like, well, even in the church, it's like, well, we hope repentance isn't something we have to do. I hope I don't have to repent. But repentance is actually liberation. It's actually freedom. Because to be at rest in God's grace means repentance is actually everywhere in our life. In fact, that was the very first of the 95 theses that that Luther wrote 500 years ago. He nailed it to the Wittenberg door, and the, and, and the, the first thing was, hey, the Christian's whole life is repentance. And why was he getting at that? Because he was about to say 94 other things that the church was doing to rip the people off and become wealthy by twisting the scriptures and telling lies. So he starts with number one, free, there's freedom in repentance. And, but we don't often think about repentance as, as, being, as being free. So what do I mean by this? What do I mean by freedom? The repentant heart is free from constantly defending itself, constantly downplaying and denying sin. We're free from wielding the phrase, you know, you don't understand my heart, you missed my heart, like some sort of of get-out-of-confession-free card. We're free from having to win every argument and spin every story so that everyone around us is forced forced to act like a mirror that has to reflect back to us the self-righteous image that we have of ourselves. We're free from all of that. We're free to repent without a repentance diminishing us. And the reason is because our identity, when we rest in God's grace, is not wrapped up in our own righteous track record. Our identity is actually rooted in Jesus' perfect track record. Which means we're free to confess our sin without that confession being detrimental to our identity. I'll say it to you this way, kids. If you think the only reason you're loved is because you walk around 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, perfectly straight like a ruler then what are the odds you're going to confess when somebody says, hey, it looks like you're slouching? And you're like, no, I'm not. I'm not slouching. I never slouch. Because you think that the only reason you're loved is because you never slouch. You're like, I can't confess that because it's detrimental to you know, my identity and people thinking I'm loved. I'm not slouching. It's you. It's, it's where you're standing. It's your angle. It's this backpack I've been wearing. It's the wind. It's the curvature of the earth. You're not going to be able to just confess and be like, oh my goodness, was I slouching? Oh. Repentance and con- and is, is liberating. But in dead religion, which is what the Pharisees were up to, and I'm going to close with this, in dead religion, your power and your confidence is in your own record. And so repentance is actually a direct threat to your confidence, and it's a direct threat to your your security. Because to the degree that you repent is the degree you're you're not confessing. You're the self-righteous person that you see yourself as. But in the gospel... Our source of power and our confidence is Christ's perfect record and not ours. And so, church, we continue in our faith the same way we began, by grace. Increasingly, we forsake our sin and we love our Savior. And when you zoom out of this story, you see, the story of the theme of the story is a father restoring his family. And that is the Bible in microcosm. The father restoring by grace. Jesus is sitting at a table with a bunch of people who the religious crowd wouldn't even give the time of day to, and he's teaching us. And Jesus is building a community that could be more opposite than what the self-righteous Pharisees were up to. They have a community of comparison. Jesus is building a community of compassion. So, if our sole purpose for gathering on Sundays is to gather around Jesus and gather around this grace and be refueled and renewed and restored by his grace... 
we will build a community here. We will want to build a community here where we will welcome those to come and to hear about his grace and to find renewal in the grace, the same hope that we have found. It's what we will desire to build. Our community will resemble the community that Jesus was building. The younger son was welcomed back by grace alone. You are welcomed back by grace alone. At the cross, Jesus took your rejection, so now you enjoy the Father's welcome. At the cross, Jesus was disrobed so that you could be given his best robe. At the cross, Jesus was exposed so you could be covered. At the cross, Jesus cried out and the Father was silent so that when you cry out, the Father says, bring the ring. And he welcomes you back as his child. At the cross, Jesus drank a cup of suffering so that every Sunday we drink a cup of celebration. He welcomes us back. The fuel for our repentance is God's grace. The focus of our repentance is goodness. And the freedom of repentance is in the continual work of his renewal. Let's pray.